Welcome to Private Banking Strategies Podcast with Vance Lowe and Seth Hicks, your secret weapon to protect your assets and never have to start over financially again. Vance and Seth help high net worth individuals, families, business owners, and investors structure an asset-protected, tax-free fortress for their families. Learn how to keep what you earn and use the velocity of money to create your own private banking system. Join us on this journey as we explore the secret strategies of the rich and political elite and help you take total control of your financial security. Now, on to the show. Welcome back to another episode of Blockhash Exploring the Blockchain, episode 353. Back again for part three, we have Seth Hicks with Private Banking Strategies here to talk about those strategies and how they may apply to crypto, preserving and saving your wealth and privacy strategies. Seth, welcome back to the show. I want to throw up the US national debt clock rule here since you sent Absolutely. it over to me. It is wild how high the, the national debt is. I think it's currently sitting at almost $33 trillion and credit card debt is over a trillion dollars now. Student loans are in a crisis. I think housing is entering another crisis. You know, it's across the board. It's an absolute disaster. You know, curious what your thoughts are on this, and you know, can is this sustainable? Like, can we keep going in this direction in the U.S.? Like, I feel like something's going to break pretty soon. Absolutely, and you're hit the nail on the head. You, you can't. This is not a sustainable curve. It's become parabolic at this point. I believe you and pointed out before we started recording just the rapid multiplication of, of the national debt probably doubled in, in a decade. And I believe when Bush came in, we were to office the Bush Jr. in the early 2000s, we were in single digit trillions. So it, it's, it's rapidly and parabolically increasing. And it, it probably, you know, need, doesn't need to be said, but that obviously devalues your, your dollar and your purchasing power. And people have seen that at the gas pumps, at the grocery stores, in housing property. For example, when I was in law school, I went to Pepperdine in Malibu, and there were some great palatial estates. I graduated in 1998, so I was there in the mid-90s. And these palatial estates would be 10 million, 15 million. I, was, I had a friend, his family was the caretaker for Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston at the time of a property on, in Malibu that had like awesome estate style property, private. Mm -hmm. It was worth about 20 million bucks at that time. Those type of properties now are have 10 X. I mean, it's 200 million for that property. And you look around and just the dollar doesn't purchase near of what it did even a decade ago, yet alone two decades or three decades ago. And so it's not sustainable, as, as we all know. The question is, what do you do? How do you protect yourself? You know, and, and sometimes people may start making more money and they, it gives them a false sense of security. Like they've got, you know, they're thinking that the three times the money they were making a decade ago actually has three times the purchasing power, which it doesn't. It probably has half the purchasing power. So 
There are absolute ways to protect yourself. And I think most of our audience that's in crypto, the, the type of protection, you know, is diversifying, having crypto, having perhaps metals, other hard assets that are going to appreciate at the same or greater type of growth. Yeah, I want to talk about some of those options, you know, what what strategies might be out there for people, because this the national debt looks so unsustainable at this point. I don't think it's ever going to get paid down. It's ever going to get rectified in any kind of way. So, you know, the best thing that people can learn to do is prepare themselves accordingly and protect their money and and, and learn to have a little bit of sovereignty over it, privacy over it, and, and learn some of those methods. And, and also in pertaining to crypto too, you know, are, are there avenues where people can utilize crypto and potentially also protect their money, hold it privately? Obviously, I know is one of them. But is there some strategies there that maybe you've pondered and explored? Absolutely, there sure are. We, we touched on this a bit in the last recording about where you purchase and where you liquidate your crypto. And this gets off into places where we have to kind of analyze people's conceptual ideas and obligations with the IRS. And most people have been brainwashed to think that that they've got to comply with every notice of the, the IRS sends and so on and so forth. And we, we've discussed that a little bit, but I, I would invite people to really investigate what the law holds. And, and here's a, a primary question is, show me the law that pertains to the payment of taxes as a citizen. And who is a citizen of the U.S.? Is it a person of every state? And, and this might be a, a red pill for a lot of folks, but a citizen is defined in the Internal Revenue Code as a, as a, a resident of the, the District of Columbia which is Washington, D.C., or other territories outside the contiguous U.S. So there are avenues where, like, I think that you can effectively maintain privacy in your purchases and liquidations of crypto, and how you handle the reporting of those is really up to your knowledge and your understanding of the law. And so I'm not, obviously we're not giving anybody advice on any specific situation because we don't know their specific situation, but I would encourage people to choose carefully where they purchase and where they sell. And we have brokerages with, and relationships with certain boutiques that are maintain financial privacy. I mean, most people probably know that Coinbase was subpoenaed by the IRS and they effectively negotiated the disclosure of their client base above a certain threshold, which is pretty low, like $20,000, I believe. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, that's an invasion of your privacy to the nth degree. And people are in crypto because they want to maintain privacy. And that's another common attribute with private banking strategies is that the way that we bank our, our fiat and the way that we protect those cash assets are also financially private. Insurance companies don't raise their hand and file any forms or report to the government when you've got ins and outs. And in fact, this is one of the, the cool things about private banking strategies is that once your money is in that that system, that structure, which we use a supercharged whole life insurance policy, it is actually exempted in the Internal Revenue Code. It's section 7702, if folks want to look that up. So Internal Revenue Code 7702, which actually exempts and carves out the growth, 
the ins and outs of the money into the in the private banking system. So they don't have to report anything and you don't have to disclose anything because there's no taxable event. So that's one of the good things about that. And it's also asset protected, unlike banks, which we discuss some as well with bank failures and dominoing things and insolvency with banks. Where would you want to put your cash? You know, some people taking it out, putting it under their mattress. There's been bank runs and some people get left with no chair to sit in when the music stops. But you can also have it in, you know, you don't have to have it under your mattress or buried in, in treasure chest. You can actually keep it in, the, in your private banking system where it is totally liquid, completely accessible and free from taking free from insolvency so yeah I, I think the problem is just holding cash in the bank period i mean the fdic only has a certain amount of money like i think like 24 billion or so to cover what 20 trillion in american deposits in total that are in the u.s banks like that threshold is so low it's if less than a, yeah if you have a crisis even close to what we had like this spring you know then then that's when problems come in the fdic can't actually insure all those accounts and right. so why so why would you hold your dollar in the bank you know aside from the fact that there's inflation your dollar's becoming less all the time the right. bank's loaning it out it's not actually there now it's not actually insured you know holding a dollar is way more riskier than actually holding an asset at this point absolutely i think i mean you hit the nail on the head very succinctly your bank could be the villain who scoops in all your cash to maintain solvency and that comes through the Dodd-Frank Act and it gives them the right to effectively take depositors money to shore up their solvency and then the next level of arguments people go well what about the FDIC I don't have $250,000 in there I'm, I'm safe you're not for the very reason you just pointed out there's you know 20 trillion in deposits and we're using rough numbers and let's say that even on the best day that the FDIC is worth a hundred billion 20 trillion versus 100 billion not even comparable not even close i mean you don't you don't even have a penny's worth of insurance on those dollars so if you've got multiple institutions failing like dominoes the fdic can't shore up all that money they make shore up the first one or the second one you know it'd be better to be in one of the first banks that fails if you if, if you're counting on fdi insurance but fdic insurance but if you actually think through it just like you said man there are other assets that are going to hold value keep pace with inflation and for example i mean some people hate on the metals but metals for thousands of years have held value i mean you know 50 years ago you could buy a very fine suit for an ounce of gold same thing today for an ounce of gold you can buy a very fine suit two thousand dollars or two hundred dollars it's the same trade exchange so i you know i believe in in hedging with metals and but i'm also a big believer in crypto for all the same reasons we've highlighted I also believe in real estate certain types of real estate and so those are three major asset classes i think that people should consider to diversify and then we have some you know particular strategies that that are are somewhat proprietary that we utilize with the private banks that we set up to acquire other assets such that your own bank is actually lending funds to a purchasing entity in an arm's length transaction that means the parties are not the same they're separate parties it's an arm's length transaction and the bank 
actually collateralizes and secures its investment to that in that asset with liens so that the lender your private family bank has first rights effectively lien rights on the asset class and that's very important for numerous reasons but for the main you know reason is it's an asset protection if someone came to you and they said i have a few real estate properties i have maybe six figures in crypto or six figures in metal and they want to set up a structure what what does that process kind of look like that you would take someone through and what does a structure kind of look like does it consist of setting up like corporate structures is it you know setting up with a boutique brokerage like you mentioned before or a private banking partner or a combination of those things or do you have to tailor it to the individual or the company give us like a little bit of like an idea of how that kind of gets set up yeah, that's a great question, Brandon. Um, it, it is definitely narrowly tailored that it's specific to a particular family office or a particular family that has particular goals. So they, oh, I mean, there's a general strategy, but it's kind of like surgery. I mean, you're going to go in with scalpels and, and actually tailor the structure to the person's particular or the family's particular needs. So for example, let me kind of give you a, a hypothetical example. We've got multiple clients that are heavy in real estate and they have their, their very, they have cash surplus. And so they fund their private banking entity, which is a separate entity that we structure with the capital to acquire, expand, restructure other debt, any one of those things or other things to utilize their cash instead of leaving it out in the open subject to risk. And so that bank effectively finances, let's say a new acquisition, new apartment building, a new raw land development structure. And that purchasing entity generally is an LLC. So it may incorporate the, the formation of LLC or multiple LLCs, one that might manage an operation, one that might own an operation, and the, their banking entity, which is a separate entity, finances those those transactions and collateralizes the loan with, you know, with with mm -hmm. with securitized liens. And on the flip side of that, I mean, the the borrowing entities, you know, they have to pay back the loans and there's a cycle, there's a velocity of money there. That's one of the seven pillars of private banking strategies that we talk about some and where it gives you multiple touches on the same dollar. You funded your bank with a dollar, the dollar is utilized to acquire other assets. That asset produces income, that income flows back into the bank with a profit and a delta. And, and then it's just completely cycled through again. So back to the, the question at hand is narrowly tailored, focused on particular needs and, and interests, but the general strategies are, are like I described. Now that same formula will apply with crypto purchases. We may form a bank, that bank capitalizes an entity which purchases crypto. And likewise, I mean, some folks are staking, you know, so I've got clients that, that like HBAR, Theta, T-Fuel for the staking aspects and others as well. And so they, they've got that built into the plan and their debt service includes liquidating stakes at certain interim places, or in some other some other times they have cash flow that they service the debt 
themselves and they let the stakes acquire because they're waiting for the right price target, you know, and that, and that can effectively, they can, you can get a 10, 20, 30, 50, sometimes a hundred X on some of these stakes that are, you know, they're rolling out things at, at low price points that appreciate in the future, which is, that's really exciting. And I think so that's another aspect or another way that, that you can overlay the strategy. Are these things jurisdictionally within the United States still, or are they taking advantage sometimes of other countries or territories outside the U.S.? Yeah, it's primarily the private banking strategies is a, a, a U.S. structure. However, we do have some high net worth individuals in various countries that have a nexus to the United States, meaning they have business in the United States, they have property that they own in the United States, they have uh, business partners in the United States, which they can have an insurable interest on their business partner's life, like a key man policy. If their business partner happens to pass, they need to replace that person. And so they have you know, high, high cash value uh, insurance policies on a key man that gives them the ability to fund their structures in the U.S., take advantages of the laws like we described with Internal Revenue Code 7702 and a tax-free economy there and utilize that same thing. But <clears throat> those are generally higher net worth folks and people that have business interest, property, or other nexus to the United States that they can show those type of things because premiums need to be paid into your bank through us banks. But I've also had clients that didn't have those things, but they were high net worth. So they come and they buy a vacation home in Florida and they open up bank accounts in Florida and they start this structure and they're an international, but yet they've got the ability to do that because of the nexus and their, their high net worth. So, it, it does. It, we can make it work for internationals, but it's the higher net worth folks. It's not a guy that's just starting at a at, you know lower level. Whereas in the United States, it's effectively applicable for everybody. From I mean, some of our best testimonies are for, like single mom, widowed mom, five kids starts out with like a ten thousand dollar policy, and she's managed that over a decade into over a million dollars in real estate. That's cash flowing for her, and just a real success story. So, <clears throat> we love the you know rags to riches type of story, but for the internationals, it's it's primarily high net worth. Did that story feel like it was about you? Do you feel like you are generating a lot of revenue but are not moving forward as fast as you would like? Do you feel you should be making more progress toward your financial goals? Do you feel stuck? Let us help you get unstuck. Are you ready to take action and get your own private bank? Please call Private Banking Strategies at 817-200-4777 or visit us at www.privatebankingstrategies.com. I want to talk a little bit as well about taxes with with crypto and maybe some potential strategies there because I know we've chatted about that quite a bit. And what's, what's very fascinating with crypto, especially in the US, is one, there's no legislation yet. It's not specifically in the tax code, like there's open letters, there's suggestions, there's what the IRS considers, what the CFTC considers, the SEC considers, what the what FinCEN considers. And, you know, those agencies regulate, you know, certain parts of the U.S. market. But 
for an individual that owns crypto, you know, you get all these opinions on, you know, what you should do with it if it's considered X, Y, or Z, if it should be taxed like this or that, you know, is it income? Is it a capital gain or capital loss? Is it property? Is it a security? Like it's a nightmare. And I'm, and I'm someone that's in crypto every day and, and I love this industry, but when it comes to taxes around crypto, it's impossible to know what to do. And then on top of that, you know, there's, there's people that have owned crypto for many, many years. There's people that, you know, make crypto as a form of income, they get paid in crypto, they get crypto airdrops that stake their crypto and earn more in the form of like a dividends. There's a million different ways to, to accumulate it, to buy it, sell it, trade it, whatnot. And, and, and then when it, at the end of the day, when it comes down to, to taxes and the IRS, it's, you know, it's impossible to know what, what to do. And the IRS, you know, they're again, you know, they're always lynching somebody and holding them up and being like, this is John Doe and John Doe didn't give us his money for his crypto. And if you don't do it too, we're coming after you and we're hiring X thousand agents to, to the agency. But the reality is they don't have the tools. They don't have the tech. They, their technology is still probably a decade backwards. They don't understand it. What do you do if you're in that situation? You have a bunch of money, let's say, sitting in crypto, regardless of how long it's been there. Is there a strategy in place that someone could apply and implement to mitigate a lot of those taxes in, in regards to crypto in particular or to you know understand better what to do in that kind of a situation? Yeah, I think so. But for most people, it is a total red pill with the matrix reference, so to speak. So mm -hmm. you watch that movie, Neo had an option, red pill, blue pill, took the red pill, went down the rabbit hole and his eyes were open to a total new world. Well, it's kind of like that with the internal revenue code in my mind, because I think that there are options and I think one has to educate themselves and become comfortable with the, the law that pertains to taxation and and it, it really it's more the absence or the omission of the law that applies to most people in the United States but they don't they don't believe that they've been brainwashed and strong-armed intimidated bullied into believing that they've got to comply with these nonsensical extortions so I mean that probably it pokes some people the wrong way right when you hear it because when I first went down this rabbit hole with the red pill I thought these folks are crazy you know these folks are absolutely crazy as to what they're proposing I don't you know want to get blasted <laughs> you, know, you don't no one wants to go to jail for tax evasion but the reality is the statistics are showing that filers versus non-filers the overwhelming majority of prosecutions come on filers because they're signing returns under penalty of perjury that everything is teed up perfectly to, according to the internal revenue code which no one completely understands not even cpas you go to different cpas you get different opinions you get different strategies and so uh, it's a mess and effectively, I mean, you can start at the top layer. What is a citizen and, and who, how does that apply to the payment of taxes? And so that's kind of where we, we start. But as far as practical strategies, you can use 
like the brokerage I've talked about, we have a relationship with that doesn't have any reporting requirements because they're not U.S. domiciled. And you can effectively purchase and liquidate crypto without any financial disclosure. You've got that that happens in complete privacy. And, And whether you decide to disclose that or not is up to you and your own understanding of the law or absence of the laws that applies to you and your own risk tolerance. So, but the overwhelming majority of prosecutions in the Internal Revenue Code come with filers, people who are signing returns under penalty of perjury, not non-filers, and they're generally not the ultra-rich. In fact, there's statistics showing ultra-rich non-filers are, you know, don't don't come under scrutiny. And there may be very many reasons for that, one of which the IRS goes after low-hanging fruit and the people that they can absolutely win on. They know they've got them on something. They filed under penalty of perjury, and they're it's kind of like a layup. They don't go after high, you know, high hard cases. They don't go after mm-hmm. folks that have tons of cash. I mean, you may recall, maybe you don't recall, but I, I recall when Trump was debating Hillary Clinton, she goes, he doesn't pay his taxes. He doesn't pay his taxes. And he, he says, I don't pay taxes because I'm smart. Yep, I, mean, I remember that. That's his reply. You know, I don't pay taxes because I'm smart. You know, more $10 billion, I don't pay taxes. And people kind of shake their head and they go, how is that possible? It it is possible because he is smart. And there's a lot of people out there that I think are waking up and taking that red pill. And they're seeing that it's a broken system and that tax dollars don't go to infrastructure. They don't go to the improvement of our country. They don't they don't make one single bit of difference. And if they did and there was a, a common good, people may feel differently. But, you know, it's it's an extortion not you know more than anything but mm-hmm. the the payment is still a voluntary system it's voluntary and so it's it's a broad discussion and we can get off in in the weeds and it will definitely provoke people it's a polar topic man <laughs> you go oh, black yeah. and white you know but as far as crypto goes if you're our, our audience is if they're crypto holders they want to trade in privacy they can they can do so. There are, there are brokerages that can do that. And we have relationships with some. They can keep their fiat in financially private storehouses and asset protected storehouses in tax free storehouses. And it's very possible. Yeah. And for people listening that are curious, you know, why the rich and wealthy don't pay as much in taxes when when you have that much money and you that have you know that much at your disposal to to apply the tax system for an ordinary person is very much a linchpin it is it's something that's punishing and it it feels like they're taking advantage of you that they're extorting you and you know they're just taking x amount percentage of of dollars every single year out of your account but again when you're wealthy and you have that money that same system evolves a bit more into an incentivization system and that this is something i've learned from experience because they put things deep into the tax code all these politicians they're always you know amending the tax code they're putting in their own take on it they're like creating opportunity zones for real estate they're creating tax credits for for energy like there's lots of ways where you can choose if you're wealthy enough because you have the the cpas and accountants to find it for you and to really understand the code you know, instead of me paying $100,000 in taxes this year because I made a lot of money, 
I could instead reinvest $100,000 and not pay anything in taxes. Right. And, and there's lots of options like that. Again, the whole IRS code becomes an incentivization system for people that have that kind of wealth and that kind of money because they can afford to look into those things. And it's something that unfortunately isn't accessible to the ordinary person, one, because they don't have the know-how to find it, and two, they don't have the capital to deploy. Because oftentimes they'll say, you have to invest X amount of dollars into automobiles or into houses or into land or into solar power or into XYZ neighborhoods or certain investment vehicles. And you get those write-offs, you get those credits, you get tax deferment for, for years down the line for capital gains, you get forgiven for certain income. So it, it's interesting. And I've seen both sides of that coin and the flip side of it being very fascinating, you know, how deep that tax code goes. And and it's it's very thick. Like I can't imagine an ordinary person ever sitting down and, and understanding it. But there's a lot of opportunity there too for those that are, you know, playing around that are in the US system, that are kind of stuck in the US system, that are trying to navigate it. Also kind of want to talk about you know, the seven pillars that kind of make up private banking strategies. I know we've covered it before, but just from a top-down perspective, we'd love to cover all seven of those just briefly to remind people, you know, what those are and and how they play into kind of what you do for people. Sure. Yeah. Well, the, the number one pillar is asset protection. So we want you to set up structures that keep what you make. I mean, there's nothing like making something and having it fall through your hands like sand and you Mm -hmm. wonder where your money went. Well, these structures and systems help you keep it asset protected, unlike a bank, a fiat money in a bank account, unlike, you know, other places. And it also creates a system where you're, like I said, cyclically paying your, your, your banking entity back the money that it loans for acquisitions. And so you're getting this multiple cycle. I mean, banks make a ton of money off of our deposits in fiat i mean and fractionalized lending they can take a 10 percent reserve and that's giving them credit some some can t- even keep less on reserve they loan out 90 percent of your money you put a hundred thousand bucks in they take ninety thousand they loan it out and they make money on money that they didn't ever earn and they keep ten thousand in reserve so you can create your own system whereby your bank is effectively getting that cyclical payment. So asset protection is one, tax-free growth. So we've talked on that. The thing about these structures as well, Brandon, is that you you don't have to be a millionaire to set up the private banking structure. And you've got the tax-free economy and system by the Internal Revenue Code's own writing. 7702. Mm-hmm. So that money in and out, you capitalize the bank, there's no taxable event. You take the money back out, there's no taxable event. That's but if you put money into an IRA or 401k, you can't get it right back out. If you and you're going to pay taxes at some point. Well, not so with the private banking structure. You don't pay taxes when you take it out. You don't pay taxes on a death benefit when the insurance policy pays on the death of the insured. It's all tax-free. So those are major differences. Financial privacy, we've touched on some, is like the insurance company's not raising their hand reporting transactions, and you've got the ability to fund and withdraw without any financial disclosure. 
the velocity of money. We mentioned that's pillar number four. And we, we've, we talk about capitalizing the bank, the bank capitalizing acquisitions or refinancing or expanding a company. And then that cash flow spinning off of the, from those assets comes back into the bank. Then the bank rinses and repeats with another asset, another business, another refinance, restructure. And you've got that what's called the velocity of money, getting the same dollar cycling around in your own economy. Then number five is where you never go backwards. Unlike stocks, unlike other investments which have risk, the life insurance structure that we use, it never goes backwards. It's only increasing. And the guaranteed rate of return is about 4% plus dividends. So it's about 7% or so. Then we've got, you've always got the ability to access your money. So you've got complete liquidity is guaranteed financing. You're never going to go to a bank and have the your own bank and have the bank go, sorry, we can't loan you the money. So you've always got that complete liquidity. And then the seventh pillar is legacy value. You got tax-free transfer to your heirs. When someone passes and then there's an insurance policy on their life, that death benefit passes to the beneficiaries tax-free. So it's a tax-free system. But those are the seven pillars that are real cornerstones of this foundation. And you can find that on our website as well. And we dig into some of those and they have a lot of content that drill down in those. Absolutely. And, and you have other content too. You have a book, right? I think we talked about that last time on the podcast. Yeah, we sure do. It's a, it's a, it's a free book that we offer to prospects and it's what the banks don't want you to know. And it's, it's on our website as well. All you do is you just put in your contact information and it becomes available to you both in a PDF version and an audio version. So you can take it on the go, listen to it as you're jogging or on a treadmill. You don't have to, you don't have to bother with it. So it, it's, and that's kind of, that's kind of a, a starting place for, to introduce some of these issues that p- get people thinking. And then if that resonates with them, they can dive into podcasts and other content and, and stay on the journey with us. Are you doing other podcasts, other audio video content at the moment with, with anyone else or with your with your own business, what are you doing in terms of vocalizing right now? Yeah, totally. We've yeah, we've been doing podcasts, producing our own podcast for about three years. I think we probably oh, nice. got sixty or seventy in the can that they can all access for free right right, out, right through our website. Um, we're often guests on other folks, either in real estate industry, also into the crypto space, and some of these spaces that we've talked about that are great partnerships with private banking like you know hand in glove type of relationships and where we think that private banking strategies really shines it shines in real estate it shines in crypto where you're funding your bank and then acquiring these assets and you've got assets that spin off a return like staking or like cash flow on real estate so those are places entrepreneurs business owners that have the ability to cycle the cash great, great candidates for utilizing this structure at a premium level. How can someone get a hold of you if they want to, you know, start the conversation, they want to figure out, you know, what, what needs they need to address, if they want to relay and get some ideas from you, work with you, 
you know, what's the best route to get in contact and set something up? Sure. Yeah. The, the best way is to hit that website, man, and take a look at that red pill book. We like to call it what the banks don't want you to know. It's a quick, it's a quick read and, or, or you can listen to it. Like I said, uh, even faster, speed it up and, and bust through it. And then if that resonates with you, check out some of the podcasts, cause we've got them pretty well organized and you, you can start in a certain place or if a certain title or topic resonates with you, jump in there. And if, if those things are resonating with you, then you can schedule an exploratory call with us and my partner, Vance, who's been a, a wealth manager for over 40 years. He was managing you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in, in Texas, and a lot of oil and gas money. And, and when he found private banking strategies 20 years ago or so, and he, he, he's got a story that he tells people why he left traditional wealth management for this private banking structure and system. And it's, a, it's quite, a, quite a story, man, quite a journey of, of what has transpired in his life. And, and he's got the background to explain why traditional money management is inferior to, to managing your own family banking system. Awesome. Yeah, I want to meet this guy too. I haven't I haven't talked to him yet, but I've had a n- number of conversations with you. Yeah, he's a great guy. We should have him on, man. <laughs> yeah, totally. Guys, for those listening in the audience, we'll have all the links in the description for the episode below, including the website. So please go click on that to you know check out the book, check out the podcast, check out the website, get in contact with Seth and you know fi- find some help for what you're doing and prepare accordingly because the world is getting crazier and crazier every single week (laughs) i can't stress that enough so you know prepare accordingly be smart seth thank you for coming on the podcast again today it's 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 always a pleasure we always have a really good conversation and i i think there's a lot of value here that people can take out of this awesome yeah thank you for having me brandon likewise really enjoy our conversations and hopefully bring some some value to your audience that that piques interest and helps them to go down some places that'll help protect them and their families absolutely take care seth did that story feel like it was about you do you feel like you are generating a lot of revenue but are not moving forward as fast as you would like? Do you feel you should be making more progress toward your financial goals? Do you feel stuck? Let us help you get unstuck. Are you ready to take action and get your own private bank? Please call Private Banking Strategies at 817-200-4777 or visit us at www.privatebankingstrategies.com.